Well, good morning everyone. In a situation like this I would normally say thank you, please take your seats. So to those who've been leading us, and thank you Bob and team for doing that this morning, please take your seats. And to those who are online with us today, we say welcome to you. Very good to have you with us. We have uh, today been able to welcome some of our cohort uh, back, uh, able to freely cross the river from one state to the other, which has not been possible as uh, easily as, as it is today for quite some time. And as one uh, set of restrictions are eased, um, there are other things that are exercising us. And I have flagged some of those in the newsletter and we'll address some of that in the message in a few moments too. So still some challenges for us to face. We're actually going to change our preaching schedule a little bit again today. We've been working our way through 1 and 2 Thessalonians, which should have been a reasonably straightforward kind of a, a program. But um, as we have faced some challenging times in this last few months, uh, we have made some changes. And I'm going to just take a deviation again today. Instead of um, looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, the issue where Paul talks to the church, writes to the church in Thessalonica about the uh, timing and circumstances around the second coming of Christ and the, and the coming of the man of lawlessness, we're going to make him wait for another week at least. And uh, we'll come to that next week, all being well. We are going to talk uh, a little bit about Romans 14 though today and I'll read that passage for you in a few moments. For those of you who have received the newsletter you will um, be aware of some of the conversations our eldership have been having around what it means for us as a church uh, in the context of regathering where our government is uh, insisting that um, in a large gathering it could only be those who are vaccinated and what does that mean for those who are not or un unable to or whatever and there has been some uh, information in the newsletter about that and I commend that to you if you'd like to know what we are thinking and how we are thinking. Uh, the conversation that we're having is going to continue over this next week and probably will for some time as we try and find our way through that. Even though this is all happening around us in the midst of all of that, uh, things are still going on. There's still some stuff happening with Kids Church. We don't see it up front like normal. It's all kind of happening under the radar, little things, little connections, uh, but important ones nonetheless. And the same true for youth, um, although, again, not able to gather and haven't during school holidays anyway. But as the term gets back into gear, there will be things happening for our young people. So the church is still active and still at work uh, and still connecting with people. And we're glad for that. Normally, as part of our um, gathering, at least back in the olden days, we would pause and receive our offering. We're not able to do that and haven't done so for a couple of years now, but that doesn't mean we've run out of money. We are so thankful to God for God's faithfulness through expressed through his people. And as I reported in the newsletter, uh, we have been able to not only meet our budget, but exceed our budget across the course of this year. And of course, concurrently, our costs have been lower 
again this year, uh, specifically because of uh, reduced staff costs and also um, more particularly this year over last year because of a decrease in, uh, in consumption of energy and whatnot. So um, we are glad that God has watched over us through this time. We had kind of hoped, um, certainly this time last year, that we may have been entering a season where we, we could regather. Um, our desire through 2020 was to hear what God was saying to us. What did God want the church to learn? And clearly there is yet much to be learnt. Uh, God is looking for a church that has been purified, that is uh, able to reflect the values of the kingdom. And so even though we continue to have to do things out of the ordinary, God is at work. And let me encourage you with this reading from, uh, from the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, which speaks about unity. And I want to speak broadly about that today, but just by way of introduction today, Philippians chapter 2 where Paul says therefore if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ any comfort from his love if any common sharing in the spirit if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love being one in spirit and of one mind do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit rather in humility value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests but to, but each of you to the interests of others in your relationship with one another have the same mindset have the same mind as christ jesus who being in very nature god did not consider equality with god something to be used to his own advantage rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Let's pray and then we'll come to our reading from Romans chapter 14. Lord, we do commence our time together today with worship in song and worship as we have read your word and worship through prayer, acknowledging your goodness to us and your holiness in all circumstances. Lord God, as your church, we would seek to become more and more like Christ in the same manner that as Paul has just said here, made himself nothing, humbled himself and became obedient. Lord, we do desire that we might be an obedient church, a church sanctified by you, a church characterised by your love, a church characterised by like-mindedness, being one in spirit and one in mind on those essential matters of faith and doctrine that uh, bind us together. Lord, we live in interesting times challenging times perhaps we're so mindful lord that there are people in our world who are facing really difficult circumstances uh, by comparison ours uh, are somewhat different but challenging nonetheless but you are lord in that and we acknowledge your lordship today and we desire that you might be lord in everything every aspect of life 
And so as we come to your word in a moment, let it challenge us, help us to put aside preconceptions or bias or ideas that we might have that would shape uh, how we would think about what your word is saying and be open to what your spirit is saying today, that you might lead us, that you might guide us, that you might grow us to become more like Jesus. Father, we do pray for our community, for those who are disconnected from us, who have been unable to meet with others, which is probably true for many of us for a long time, for those who have been struggling with health concerns, those who have been hospitalised and isolated in that context, those who are uncertain about work and what that looks like into the future. Lord, we know that you are still God and that you call us to walk faithfully with you and in that place will honour us as we do what we believe you call us to do, no matter whether it comes at a cost, no matter whether it means changing things, no matter whether it means uh, standing up for something. Lord God, we do ask that you might reveal yourself in all of these things of life today. And as we come to your word, Lord, open our ears that we might hear what you're saying, that we might grow to become like Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen. Our reading, as I flagged a few moments ago, is from Romans chapter 14. I'm going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 through to 23, and you'll find it on the screen there for you to follow along. Paul says, Except the one whose faith is weak, without quarrelling over disputable matters, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand." One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us live lives for ourselves alone and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account to, uh, of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I'm convinced being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. 
For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Well, there's a complicated passage. We'll take a few moments to unpack that uh, in a few minutes. Let me just say, though, um, like most Australians, possibly men and women, I suspect, um, there's a certain hardware store, we won't mention the name publicly, that, <laughs> that we like to go to. And it's not just because uh, we've, there's good garden supplies or um, tools and electrical stuff and plumbing stuff and all of that kind of fun stuff. Lots of us, if we're really honest, uh, like going there because there's a barbecue and um, to be honest with you, there's actually been times where I have on a weekend thought, I'll just swing by uh, and not even to look at hardware, just to get a barbecue sausage and, uh, and a bit of onion, you know, either on top or underneath, doesn't really matter. Except um, there was one occasion when I came unstuck because on this particular occasion, as I went um, towards the barbecue, what do you call it, the barbecue gazebo, um, I actually took notice of who was running the barbecue. Now, most of the time, you just check the prices, you know, make sure they haven't put the price of sausages up um, or anything like that, not trying to rip us off. Um, and if you look, there's almost always the name of a community group that's um, actually raising some funds. You know, it might be uh, something like the, the Girl Guides or it might be um, the Leneva Men's Shed or it could be the Save the Speckled Duck uh, Society or something like this. And on this particular occasion, as I glanced, just uh, literally on my way to get a sausage, I glanced and I saw it was run by the Wodonga Masonic Lodge and I thought, oh dear. Because for me, I, I have some grave concerns about the spiritual foundations that sit underneath um, the Freemasons. Uh, so much so that I have said previously I would not allow uh, a practicing Freemason to serve in leadership in a church that I was pastoring. And so had made a decision on the basis of these concerns that I would do nothing at any stage in any way, shape or form to support the Freemasons. And so suddenly here is a dilemma that I have. Um, you know, I can cope with my money going to the Girl Guides, great organisation. I, uh, uh, I can sit okay with, um, with the Leneva Men's Shed, you know, they might do a terrific job supporting different community groups. And I wouldn't know a speckled duck if I tripped over one, but I'm sure that the, uh, the Speckled Duck Society preservation people who probably wear straw hats and wear camo gear out in the, in the, in the field, they're lovely people. And I'm happy to buy sausages from them, but I would have had to act against my own conscience 
if I was to buy a sausage and support the Freemasons. And so on that day, I turned and I walked away, hungry. And uh, rather funnily, uh, later that same week, I I was telling uh, Matt this story in the office and and he just laughed at me uh, in the nicest possible way. And look, you might be laughing too, thinking, you know, David, that's the silliest thing. You know, it's just a sausage. And it is. And for all I know, if, if you had been with me, you might have said, what's the problem? Doesn't matter. And I might have tried to convince you. I might have said to you, you know, I'm really passionate about this. Uh, I might have given you all the reasons why you shouldn't support the Freemasons. And if you'd said, you know what, I don't feel the same way. I'm going to buy a sausage. I would have had to accept that. And uh, that would have been fine. You see, um, buying a sausage uh, from the Freemasons is not a salvation issue. It's not going to determine whether we make it to heaven or not. It's what Paul might call here in Romans 14 a disputable matter, a matter on which we can hold or people can hold uh, quite different viewpoints. And today I want to spend a little bit of time looking at this passage because it speaks very, uh, very uh, directly to how we as Christians engage with disputable matters. A disputable matter, a, a disputable matter is, is very much something like this issue with the sausage. You know, for me to buy a sausage from the Freemasons would have been to go against my conscience. Another brother or sister in Christ might have been more than happy to do that and do it without a second thought. Now, here's my question. Who's going to get to heaven first out of the two of us? Well, the sausage has got nothing to do with it. Absolutely nothing to do with it. It makes no difference. To put it simply, uh, a disputable matter is an issue on which people might have quite divergent views have potential to cause enormous division but actually don't impact our status before God and certainly not uh, whether or not we are saved or not. Now the question is why speak about uh, this today? Uh, Well, a couple of reasons, quite simply because through the history of the church we have gone to war on occasions over disputable matters. We've gone to war over issues as though they were literally spiritual life and death. But more so particularly today because uh, we've suddenly found ourselves as a church, as Christian churches, having to respond to this question of what do we do uh, if the government insists that for us to regather in large numbers we have to exclude or include or make decisions on the basis of a person's vaccination. Now, as soon as I even mention that topic, I know there will be some whose ears will prick up because they have invested heavily in thinking about this and will have some very strong opinions on this topic. You know, we do our research, I use that word carefully because there's a big difference between doing research and looking up a few Google sites. Uh, You know, we've gathered the evidence we've consulted with like-minded people normally those like us we listen to the experts uh, we 
dive in, we've come to a place, in fact, sometimes we come to a place where it's easy to believe that anyone who doesn't agree with us is just plain wrong, if not seriously deluded into the bargain. And this is often how it goes with disputable issues. And Romans chapter 14 is of great relevance today to us. For although Paul doesn't say a word about vaccination or uh, vaccine passports, he has some very helpful advice for the church on how to navigate its way through a disputable issue. And so as we speak about this issue, I'm not going to say a word about vaccination. I'm not qualified to do so. Matt made this point last week too. But we are qualified to speak uh, theologically, spiritually into this Uh, How do we prosecute, if you like, how do we process uh, the, the, the way through division that can sometimes be quite acute over these kinds of issues? Well, Romans chapter 14 is a passage that Paul uh, wrote to a church who were in conflict and quite serious conflict, I suspect, over uh, some disputable issues. What is Paul's response? Well, here's an interesting thing he says in verse 14, uh, sorry, in chapter 14, verse 1. His first statement, often misunderstood, he said, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Now, if we were gathered together and we had a congregation full of people, as is uh, typically the case, I would be really tempted to say, pop up your hand if you've got weak faith. And I suspect that not too many people would put up their hands, not because they don't perceive that they've got strong faith, but more particularly because none of us want to be considered to have weak faith. But what is weak faith what is a person what does a person with weak faith look like well one of the really common perceptions would be of a person who doesn't know what they believe or is um, blown about by one opinion or another and that might be true that might be symptomatic of weak faith a, a person we might conceive of having weak faith is is someone who doesn't quite know what to believe or is easily kind of pushed off center in terms of what they believe or they just might be a person who doesn't believe the same as we do. Uh, They might be a person who interprets scriptures different to the way that we have. Um, And so uh, we might therefore pull up some good proof text to uh, prove that they are weak in their faith or selfish or that there is pride in what they are saying and so uh, and buttress uh, what we believe as against what they believe now if that's what you think weak faith is let me disturb your comfortable world because that's not what paul was talking about in this passage according to paul and if you have a look um, in verse 2 A person of weak faith is not the one who is unsure of what to believe, but who has developed really strong, unyielding, intractable views on a particular issue that is not a salvation central issue, you know, something that's a little peripheral to salvation, something that's not central to salvation. A person of weak faith has taken something that is not center to the gospel and made it as though it was center to the gospel has elevated that issue to the point where it becomes a a matter of either you're in or you're out kind of thing 
a person of weak faith takes a non-salvation issue and tries to make it into one. And we've seen this happen through the years. There's some classical examples, uh, and I'll, I'll just give you a few carefully, though, because I might tread on some toes even doing this. You know, I've had discussions with people who, uh, who, who say, and some here, you know, we should sing more hymns or we should sing more choruses and it's fine to have preferences in regards to what we sing but it becomes a problem if that argument then moves to and I've heard this argument stated and you might have too you know the church should not sing certain things we should only sing the hymns because they are the things that God gave us anything else is sinful and so we need to go back to those great old hymns of our faith, which rather curiously kind of started in many respects as some um, pub tunes. I don't know whether some people who argue that case realise that is the case. But some people have elevated that issue to a kind of a litmus test of who's in and who's out. I've had um, people tell me over the years that we really uh, are doing the wrong thing if we're not reading the Bible in the original language, the King James Version. Now, you might have a preference for the King James Version. That is absolutely fine. We will always respect that. You might have a preference for another version that you grew up, grew up with or the one that you commonly read now. But if we elevate that to a, a, a test of who's orthodox and who's not, who's in and who's out, then we have a problem. That would be an illustration of weak faith. Uh, people years ago tried to convince me that unless you speak in tongues you're not saved I don't see that in the scripture again something that has been elevated in some context to a point where it becomes a test of orthodoxy a, a mission agency that I knew of I didn't work for um, American based insisted that their staff had to subscribe to a particular view of the millennium the end times and if you didn't describe to the uh, uh, prescribe ascribe if you didn't agree with that view then you couldn't work with them something that was taken and elevated beyond what uh, it really should have been I'm of the view that all of those matters are what Paul would have called disputable issues because they cause division but they actually are not related to salvation sometimes they are elevated to the point as though they are when in actual fact they are not now in this passage Paul deals with two disputable issues and you will have picked them up as we read through them uh, the first one was is it okay or not to eat meat or should um, we adopt a vegetarian lifestyle and the other one was which day is the right one to worship God on now, it's worth just having a little background before we unpack that, because um, in those days, in these ancient times, uh, pretty much the only source of meat that a person was able to source would have come from the meat market, and the meat in the meat market would typically have come from the idol temple. Meat would have been sacrificed to an idol and then taken to the market and sold in the market we would probably fairly assume that a person who was sacrificing the meat would have taken the choice animal to sacrifice to their gods and so the meat in the meat market that had come from those idol sacrifices would have been the prime cuts the best of the best 
and in fact we're pretty certain that through these days it was almost impossible to buy meat that hadn't been offered to the gods unless you sacrificed uh, unless you killed your own so the question is what is a christian to do well some people believe that it was wrong to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols just like i couldn't bring myself to buy a sausage that was being sold by the freemasons and in fact what we see here as we read this passage is that there were some in the church who were arguing that the only way to properly express your christianity was to be a vegetarian and they were probably arguing this quite vehemently in the same manner that those who said no you can eat everything were probably arguing quite vehemently now uh, there's nothing wrong let me just say this nothing wrong with being a vegetarian uh, i had a friend whose name was ralph who did have a problem with this he said green stuff is not food green stuff is what food eats but that was just ralph's point of view uh, there are some who choose to be vegetarians for lifestyle, some who will choose to be vegetarians for health, uh, some who can't digest. There's lots of reasons. Nothing wrong with that. And equally, nothing wrong with eating meats. And so in the church here that uh, Paul was writing to, some were arguing you could eat anything you liked. And so buying a sausage from the Freemasons was fine, just as consuming meat from the pagan temple was fine. And there was tension in the church as one group asserted spiritual superiority uh, of their position over the other. In verse 5, you'll see there Paul addresses a second issue. One man considers, uh, one, uh, one person considers one day more sacred than another and another considers every day alike. You know, there was arguments about whether we should worship on the Sabbath or on the Sunday or as every day the Lord's Day. Well, how does Paul respond? Well, in respect of both of these issues, at least in this part of the chapter, this early part of the chapter, Paul doesn't say which view is right or which view is wrong. In fact, in verse 3, he said, the one who eats everything must not look down on the one who does not, and the one who doesn't must not condemn the one who does because God has accepted him. In verse 5, he said, one man considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, I don't know about you, but I actually find that answer kind of frustrating because we want answers, don't we? We want to know what is right and what is wrong. We want to know who is right and who is wrong. And more particularly, we want to know that we're right and the other person is wrong. And we put a lot of work and effort sometimes into buttressing our stand on an issue so that we can prove that the other person's view is wrong. Our sense of justice demands that we define right and wrong. And we even turn to the Bible at times and we look for those verses to support our viewpoint. And when we found those verses, we take our Bibles and we bang that person on the head with those verses to try and prove that they are wrong. Well, rather annoyingly, Paul doesn't say what his view is because if he had, then the people would not have been able to get past that. He would have been lumped with one side of the argument or the other. So what does he do? Well, he actually makes an important statement that reminded the church and reminds us too that what is actually at stake in arguments over disputable matters is not what's right or wrong 
but lordship. In verse, Paul's, uh, verse 4, Paul said, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The real issue, Paul says, is not whether you eat meat or whether you are a vegetarian, whether you observe a particular day or you don't observe a particular day. The real issue is whether you are truly submitting to God in doing what you are doing. But here's the problem. You see, all too often we want to take the place of God in telling the other person what they should do or what they should believe. We are so firmly of the view in some of these matters uh, of what's right and, and what is wrong that if somebody is at odds with us, they're not walking in step with the Lord. And yet Paul says here, you are not their Lord. You don't know their hearts. They are not your servants. They don't answer to you on disputable issues. They stand before God themselves. So stop condemning the person who holds a view at odds to yours. The issue is not about their salvation. It's a different story if it is. But don't act as though it is when it's not. And they're very strong words and very strong words of warning that Paul puts here. In verses 5 through to 12, Paul summarised his argument. Whatever you do, he says, be fully convinced before the Lord that it is right. If you abstain, do it unto the Lord. If you eat meat, do it unto the Lord. For none of us live for ourselves anymore and none of us die for ourselves anymore. Now that statement sounds a little confusing uh, until you read verse 9 where Paul reminded the church that in everything, even in life and death, Jesus is Lord by virtue of what he did on the cross for us. This means that there is no basis for us to judge the decisions or actions of another person and no basis for us to look down on another person if they hold a view that it is at odds to ours. If they truly believe, they are deciding and acting in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus is Lord, not us. In verse 13, Paul makes a statement that I remember being taught in Sunday school when I was a small boy. It's a statement that goes like this. Don't put a stumbling block in the way of another person. Now, I don't know what images come to mind for you when um, you think about stumbling block. As soon as I read this passage, I remember an occasion many years ago when I was waiting with some school friends for a train at the Hatter station way out in the middle of nowhere, northwest Victoria. It was late at night. The train was coming, I don't know, 10 o'clock or something it was dark we were having a great time playing chasey in the kind of vicinity around the right of way of the railway station we were having a ball of a time belting through the spin effects chasing one another and it was going really well until uh, as I was roaring through the darkness and unbeknownst to me there was a, a random piece of railway iron you know a piece of railway track that was just cut and dumped in the grass lying there and I caught my foot on it tripped and fell full steam face first into uh, you know the railway ballast that was spread everywhere that was not a, a terrific moment that was truly a stumbling block and I didn't understand what Paul meant by that other than tripping someone up um, but now I understand what Paul is saying as I read this passage. And what he's saying is that we should not try to force a person to act against their conscience 
by doing what we think is the right thing. Don't force them to do something they don't want to do. That would be a stumbling block, and I'll explain why in a few moments. The verses 14 through 16 are really interesting. Paul said in verse 14, As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am convinced that no food is unclean in itself. So he plays his hand. He does explain what his view is. But he says, if anyone regards something as unclean, then for them it is unclean. Now that's a really strange statement. It, it sounds as though Paul's advocating for relativism. You know, whatever you believe is okay. Well, that's not the case. Paul, as we know from the scriptures, is very quick to point out sin and on moral issues is totally down the line. Uncompromising in terms of salvation issues. But when it's a disputable issue, Paul is prepared to accept differences even when they are at odds to what he believes himself. And there's a really important reason why he's prepared to do that. Because sometimes in these disputable matters, we do try to force others to act in a manner that might be contrary to what they believe. And Paul says by doing that, we're not acting in love. In fact, we're putting a stumbling block in their way. As far as Paul's concerned, eating anything is fine, no big deal. But if you try to force your view onto another person, you're messing with another person's conscience. You're putting a stumbling block in their way, and that's really serious, and I'll tell you why that's serious. It's serious because our consciences are actually a gift from God. They're an inbuilt mechanism that we all have, and they are all tuned to various degrees because we do things that can uh, attune our consciences. We do things that can destroy our consciences, but they are a God-given mechanism by which God's Holy Spirit can communicate with us. Uh, it's something that God has factored into our lives to bring an awareness of wrong and ultimately conviction of sin. Now, here's the thing. If I, because of the strength of my convictions, uh, for someone else to act against their conscience, I am causing their conscience to be damaged and I am inadvertently damaging the capacity that they have built in them to hear God. And that's serious. Now, as I said, of course, consciences are not perfect and they can be scarred. But here's a statement worth reflecting on provocative perhaps but worth reflecting on in some circumstances it might actually be better to let somebody do the wrong thing by my estimation and maintain their conscience than it would be to violate their conscience to do what is right in my eyes there may be some circumstances where it is better to let that person do the wrong thing, not morally the wrong thing. Let's be clear about that. There are some things that are, that are clearly different. Salvation issues, clearly different. But on a disputable issue, better to let someone do what we think is the wrong thing than to coerce them in such a way as they would have to compromise their conscience and so be tripped over. And just as, a, as a, an out there political statement, I don't make these very often. I sincerely wish our politicians would hear this message right now. And in fact, in verse 23, Paul suggests if the one who has doubts about whether he is doing the right thing uh, or not and goes against their conscience, then they're not acting from the foundation of faith but from sin. And that's really serious stuff. So there's some very, very strong stuff in here about 
coercing someone to act against their conscience. It damages that ability that God has built into them to discern right from wrong. Now, in all of this, Paul was keen to warn the church against judging those who held a different view on an issue and also the danger that we've just talked about of, of trying to force someone to act against their conscience. But this was not all that Paul was doing. Paul was not just warning the church. He wanted to encourage the church, to build up the church in the way that they related to one another. In verse 19 to 20, Paul said, Let us therefore make every effort to, lead, uh, to do what leads to peace and mutual ed edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. In other words, don't let those disputable matters destroy uh, the peace and the unity that you have together. In verse 21, he said, It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. And this is where the rubber really hits the road. In the middle of a dispute over a disputable matter, in the middle of division, we want to roll up our sleeves and get right in there with our boxing gloves on and duke it out with that other person, sticking to our guns on whatever the issue is until there's a resolution. Paul would say, whoa there. You have to rise above that. It would be better not to eat meat or drink or wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. Paul's actually saying, if what you are standing for is causing division, better to let go of that issue than to break up the unity that we have with Christian brothers and sisters. That's pretty powerful too, isn't it? It's so hard for us to let go of stuff that we're passionate about. It's so hard for us to let go of something we've invested in, something we believe in. But it is, if it is one of these disputable issues and it's causing us a division uh, with those <coughs> who love the Lord Jesus, Paul would say it's better to let the issue go. The priority is the community. Now, if you've been keeping in touch um, with us through our newsletters, you'll know that our eldership have been wrestling significantly with um, the implications of let's broadly call them vaccine passports and regathering and I want to just take a few moments to think about that in light of what Paul says here in Romans chapter 14. I think I can say in all truthfulness without exaggeration this whole this whole deal the whole question um, has probably been one of the heaviest I've had to wrestle with in 20 years of ministry and we're still facing uh, the uncertainty of that. The potential for harm and division is enormous if we are not as God's people walking in the spirit. But the question I want to ask today is this, does it have to be? Does it need to be? What if, let's just posit an alternative what if as the people of God we said you know what we will not let whatever the issue might be we will not let this issue be something that divides us what if 
uh, in this space, we lived out 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, which says, I am a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. In other words, the old way that was given to division and argument and standing up for my rights and pride and, and, and all of that stuff is gone. I'm living under new management. I will live a different way. What if we got hold of that as a church? What if we really caught the vision of what, uh, the, uh, what spiritual unity is actually all about and and we as a collective as a whole congregation here at Wodonga and District Baptist Church said we will not let this man-made issue divide us we will not let something like this separate us in love from our brothers and sisters in Christ we can still disagree we can still have robust debates we can still work at convincing the other person uh, about what we uh, what we believe and understand that's fine but we will do it in a manner that is always respectful and always humble and absolutely seasoned and soaked with grace. What if we were prepared, like a couple standing here being married, who will say, I will love you no matter what. What if we were prepared as God's people to say, I will do just that with you? Saying no matter what happens, no matter how sharp our disagreement might be, we will love one another. I've told you the story of a friend of mine from uh, former ministry who, who uh, fell into sharp disagreement with me. It was on a disputable issue. Um, we had some of the most robust debates. Uh, they were really, really interesting. They were deep and they were, well, they were hard sometimes too. But I've got to tell you this. This guy, uh, to his credit, always managed to do it in a manner that was uh, characterised by love and grace. And we would always part as friends. We would commit to pray for one another. We would always maintain our relationship because our relationship in Christ trumped everything. What if we as a church were able to get hold of that, even though we face some challenging and uncertainty, uh, challenging times and uncertainty in the future. Now, this might all sound like a bit of a pipe dream, but let me tell you straight, this is exactly what Jesus expects us to do and nothing less than this. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul said, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort, not just an effort on Sunday morning. We know we come in on Sunday and we're nice to everyone because that's what we do. Not just, you know, when we see them down the street, but always, not a half-hearted effort, not an effort for a moment to look good. Every effort. That means how I speak, how I post, how I communicate, how I posture myself, every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You know what, I reckon if, um, if we could get hold of this, and I've said this to our elders, we can go in Christ from being good to being great. And people will look and say, what is the difference because we're living in a world that is divided. There's chaos all around us and confusion and uncertainty and people are just, what's coming next in this changing world? What a testimony it would be if the church of, of God's people was able to get together and, and love one another as we are called to do, even in the midst of quite significant differences. It'd make a world of difference.
in lots of respects, it's actually the, the, uh, the fuel that energized the growth of the early church because the early church demonstrated love that was countercultural. And I think there's an opportunity in this space for us to do exactly the same thing. And I don't mind what you believe on these issues. I'd love to be able to stand here today and tell you what our elders will advise the church if, if the current trajectory of, uh, of uh, rules goes the way it looks like it's going. But I don't know. I, I can't do that because I'm not sure what we're going to do just yet. Even as I've sat with this passage, some of my own views on how we ought to respond have changed as I've reflected on what Paul says here. But my prayer is this, that as we approach this potential challenge, as God exposes our hearts in this place, we might be ready and willing to take on board these things that Paul says about being unified being one in the spirit, maintaining that against all other things, being prepared to pay the cost of actually letting go some things that we might be passionate about for the sake of maintaining relationship with uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. And that doesn't for one moment mean to say we can't have a view or that we can't have a stand. Paul would say, absolutely, you can. Do it in submission to God. But don't do it in a way that elevates it beyond what it actually is. And certainly don't do it in a way that would break up the unity of God's people. Our prayer as um, a leadership of the church right now is that we might actually see God do something incredible in this space. Lots of us on occasions are overwhelmed and, and all we can see is confusion and angst and, and concern and darkness in some ways but I think God has some wonderful opportunities for us in the midst of this challenge and that is our prayer let's uh, pray now too as uh, as we lean into God in this Lord we give you thanks that through history your church has faced some quite acute challenges and history would tell us that you have always made a way that you have always made a way in even the darkest of places, that you have always made a way when the way forward has seemed all but impossible. When the powers of evil, when the forces of man have come against your church, you have raised up faithful men and, men and women with hearts that have been set apart, consecrated before you, who have been prepared to say, I'm done with pride, I'm done with my rights, I'm done with being first, I will be a servant, I will be uh, submissive, uh, I will put Jesus first, and in putting Jesus first, I will serve others. Lord, we want to be that church. And we want to look back at this time, God, as a time when we could see you doing amazing things, wonderful things, transforming us in the way we think about you and the way we think about one another and the way we think about our world. So, Lord, today, let us have open hearts. Let us sense the passion of your spirit in this place. Let us grow in Christ-likeness as we prayed earlier in our service so that in every conversation that we have, everything we read, everything we say, everything we write, everything we engage with might be filtered through that grace and love of Jesus. Lord, convict us too, we pray, where we have spoken ill of others, whether they have been in leadership over us in the political realm or perhaps people within the church who have a different view 
may the mind of Christ overwhelm us, we ask, and transform us. For we ask this in your name. Amen. Are we going to invite Bob and the team who are back here on stage to lead us in our final song? Hey, it's been great to be able to be with you again today. We look forward to uh, gathering again next week. All being well, we will plunder our way back into 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Topic or two, because uh, a few people talking about end times issues just in the context of our changing world. So we'll have a look at some of the uh, things that uh, are said there. But have a great week. Be encouraged in the Lord and may you walk in unity as the Spirit empowers. Amen.